This week has been a hard week. Myself, for elementary school, and particularly the Sellers family. Tim, we love you guys. And I've been encouraged by how this community has shown up in support. And I'm thankful. And I want to invite you this afternoon, be a funeral service for Brian right here, 4 p.m. in our sanctuary. And I encourage you to love on the family. At least, at least, lift them up in prayer. And then move from there as God directs. As we've been wrestling through this week, some questions that I want to engage with you this morning as we think about going into our next chapter in our series on Ephesians. Kind of want to get a cross section this morning of our community. We may pull these questions out from time to time in the future, just kind of to understand where we are as a church on a scale of one to five, one being absolutely not, five being absolutely agree. Do you have someone who loves you? Thank you for your responses this morning. The majority of the room says, yes, I've got someone who loves me. All right, we'll go to the next one. Don't worry if you're still getting on. The code will still be there. You can, uh, you can log in there. Do you have a source of joy? Do you have a source of joy? By the way, these are anonymous. So please be honest. Please be honest. It's okay to be honest. Out of 150 respondents, majority of the room says, yes, I have a source of joy. But there are some of you who are in the middle on that. We remember you. We remember you. All right, last one that we'll do this morning. Do you have a sense of peace today? Do you have a sense of peace today? I've asked you about somebody, someone who loves you, a source of joy. Now, do you have a sense of peace today? Hmm. This one we're a little bit more mixed on, and that is okay. That is okay. I hope and pray this morning that for a good portion of the room today, peace is what's lacking for you. I hope and pray that this little respite, this little bit of time that we get to spend with one another is a place of peace. Pastor Anthony and I are going to be tackling a Christmas series coming up start end of November on peace. We're going to talk about the God of peace and the Christmas story. And I think that's apropos for the time that we live in. So that's a commercial for things to come. Thank you for participating this morning. We can go ahead and pull that off of the screen. This is what it means to live in a community that we experience love, that we have joy, and that we have a place or a sense of peace. Community does not guarantee that we will always experience those things but it does provide the environment for us to find the love, the joy, and the peace that we need. Paul in the book of Ephesians has spent three chapters describing a new community. Chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, what we've been moving through in this sermon series. It's all about a new way to be human and an identity that has been strongly based in Christ. We learned a few weeks ago that God's identity and purpose give life to our identity and purpose. That action without relationship is meaningless and relationship without action is not possible. And last week, we saw how the outsiders have become insiders because Jesus changes 
everything. And in between Ephesians chapter three and chapter four, there's a door that swings and it moves us from Paul talking about a theoretical community, an idea about what the community could look like to the practicality of what that community is. You know, big doors swing on small hinges and that small hinge is Ephesians chapter four, verse one. This move from the theoretical to the practical looks like this. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling for which you have been called. Paul talks to the church. He visions this community for them. He says, therefore, in light of everything that has come before, I beg you that your lives would match the calling with which you have been given. And by the way, you've been called by God. And what is that calling? It's not necessarily a sense of vocation or the specific things that you do day to day. No, this calling is foundational and it's a belief in Jesus and a pledge to come to a complete and undivided allegiance to him for the rest of our lives. Paul has gotten very practical, real quick. And I remember that moment for me as a summer camper attending Glacier View Ranch. Anybody gone to Glacier View Ranch, other staff, campers? Yeah, I see some of you guys. On their ropes course there, there's this pole that, you know, when you're a little like junior camper, the thing's like 100 feet in the air. It's probably only 20 or 30, but it looks 100 feet in the air. And the premise is this, that you're gonna be harnessed in, attached to a rope, you climb to the top of that pole and you stand on top of it, of course with strong legs, right? No, you're probably up there just knees shaking, right? And the goal is to jump from that pole and reach out and grab onto a bar that's in front of you. And they called that element, the leap of faith. And on the ground, Everything is theoretical, you know, as we're there as a, as a cabin and everybody's kind of, you know, elbowing each other like, yeah, you could do that. That's no problem. This is easy. And then you put the harness on and you put the helmet on and you get clipped in and you start to climb and you realize that the pull is not as stable as you thought it might be. And you get to the top and realize that once what, what once was just an idea you are now experiencing in totality. And the staff member who's belaying you at the bottom says, go ahead, go ahead and take the leap of faith. You're like, ah. That's what Paul's invited us to do, to take a leap of faith. He says, we've been talking in terms of theoreticals. Now we're moving practical. May you believe in Jesus and may you pledge an undivided allegiance to him for the rest of your life. Take the leap of faith. You cannot do it half-heartedly. You will not grasp the bar if you do not, I think the young people call it full send. Yeah, it didn't land either. You've got to commit. You've got to reach out. You've got to grab the bar and take a leap of faith. And Paul backs this up with a little theological reminder that as we are taking a leap of faith and living the life with which we've been called, Continues, verse two of Ephesians chapter four. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. 
Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there's one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and through all. Paul says, keep, keep on keeping on. Let your love be shown to one another in gentleness and in humility. And by the way, the Spirit is the one who provides unity. Be diligent to preserve it in the bond of peace. And he will go on in an early church, perhaps, list of fundamental beliefs about the things that are bringing the early church together of one faith and one baptism, one Lord and one hope and one future calling and one God and Father of all. He says, I want you to remember what brings us together. The foundational belief in the character of God and his dealings with the world. Remember what brings us together. And far too often, and we were taught it at an early age, things that are similar and things that are different. And we like to harp on the things that are different and poke at those things. I think sometimes that gets us off track. Paul will tell us in a moment about the different things that we need to bring to the table. But in terms of our belief, foundational to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, brings us together and catalyzes us as a community. He continues on, verse seven of Ephesians four. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. This is why the scriptures say, we read it a moment ago, when he ascended in the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended into our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. We receive gifts because Jesus has come and done what he set out to do. We are bound together in our belief in that idea. But Paul says, you've each been given gifts, a unique gift, a special gift. By the grace of Christ, we've been given gifts. And I don't know about you, but who doesn't like a gift, right? With the holiday season coming up, maybe some wrapped presents under a tree, or maybe you've had a birthday recently, or one coming soon that you're constantly reminded of. I don't know about you, but it's fun to receive gifts. It's even better to give gifts. But in this moment, Christ has given us everything. It's the gift of grace. And Paul expounds upon it even more that these special gifts are for a purpose. And these are the gifts, Ephesians 4, verse 11. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. You've probably heard a sermon on one of these before, maybe a spiritual gift seminar. You kind of divide it up and say apostles are this way, prophets are that way, evangelists are this, and pastors and teachers are that and in this passage, under grammatical construction, known as the Granville Sharp Rule, you see the role of apostles, you see the prophets, you see the evangelists, and Paul links the work of pastors and teachers together. In other words, you cannot pastor without teaching, and you cannot teach without pastoring. 
So know this, the teachers that have been shepherding our students through worship this morning, pastor our young adults on a daily basis. They are doing God's work in ministry as pastor teachers. To do the work of teaching well, you cannot do it without pastoring. To do the work of pastoring well, you cannot do it without teaching. And Paul doesn't want us to get hung up on the, the differences between this gift and between that gift and say, hey, there's a special class of people that this is reserved for. No, look what the job of these people are. Verse 12 of Ephesians 4. Their responsibility, who's them? Well, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. That's the responsibility of those who have received these gifts. And, that, and as, as I was studying this this week, I realized that I owe y'all an apology. Because too often, we as pastors have stolen from you the most beautiful part of what the church is intended to be. A community of believers bringing their gifts together to equip one another for service and for mission. But modern Christianity has often turned, turned what we do as church into a spectator sport. That you can come and consume. That you can be a customer. And I want to say that I'm sorry. Because that's not what Paul outlines in this passage. No, Paul's invitation is that we are fellow employees together of the king. We are co-laborers with him. And you know, I do want to say thank you. All the words of affirmation that you've shared with me and with our pastoral team, the videos over the past couple of weeks, it often a lot of what we do as pastors feels like it goes into the abyss, that there's no echo back. But you've echoed back loudly in the past month of how your life has been impacted and it's been touched. Real life change has been happening and impact is being made. And some of you have come to me and says, what can we give to our pastors for pastoral appreciation? What can, what can we do? What would, what would you appreciate? And here's what I'll offer to, to you today. If you'd like to appreciate our pastors really, really well, here's what you can give. If you see one of our pastors, and I'll include our teachers in this too, if you see one of us doing something you feel called to or would like to be equipped for, jump in. Take a leap of faith. God calls apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers so that every Christian can serve in the way that they are called to. I invite you to step in and step up. You want to show your appreciation? Our pastors would love for you to be involved in the work and the mission of this community. And remind us, please remind us in the future that if we are in a season where equipping is not happening and we're taking on more than we should and robbing you of the opportunity to minister, please call us out. I give you permission because this work is not solely dependent on the paid staff. We are in this together. And here's what we are called to do, verses 14 through 16 of Ephesians 4. Then, 
as we're built together in this, this maturity and bringing our gifts together, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced and people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Really what Jesus is inviting us to be is we are called to be spiritual bodybuilders. That went over just about as well in first service as it did this morning. Pastor, what are you talking about? We're going to, you know, kind of bulk up. Yes. You want our church to grow? Paul says, get everybody together, bring the gifts together, equip those that need it, and get busy building the body of whom Christ is the head. And Jesus orders us together where each of us has a purpose and a ministry and a calling. And if we try to do it by ourselves, we will fall short. But when we are built together, spiritual bodybuilders, God is glorified. And we do more together than we would apart. And Paul says, if you're going to do this, you want to grow in maturity, you want to stop just consuming Christianity and be bought into the, the, the vision, you don't want your spiritual life to just be, be stagnant, here's what you've got to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Hold on, Paul. You spent a whole chapter telling us about how your, mystery, your ministry is towards sharing the mystery of the gospel, that outsiders can become insiders. To which group again? Uh, yeah, the, the Gentiles, yeah. And you just offended all of them. He says, live no longer as the Gentiles do. They are hopelessly confused. Paul, what are you getting at? And what Paul is inviting the Gentiles to do is to lay aside what has previously defined their identity and invites them to find their identity in Christ. And that begins with the renewal of the mind that we see in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24. Go ahead to the next verse. Instead, laying aside that old identity, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. That's the invitation. Don't do what you had done formerly, what previously defined you. No, find your identity in the Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to transform your mind. And by the way, this is full send and full commitment. You can't use half of your mind in this process. God wants all of you. That includes all of your mind, all of your body, and all of your soul. And he's calling on his church to not do things the way that the world does, but to do them according to the life and the love of Jesus Christ. And for us, it begins with hitting the gym of the mind. Let that spirit renew you. As a young kid, I was very impressionable. Uh, my, my parents are very careful, at, you know, watching movies or TV shows. I very quickly pick up on lines. 
you know, you, you can, there are those of you in the room that can quote movie lines and TV shows, right? Well, there were some that were okay to quote. And then there were some that were like, you don't, like, we don't, we don't say that, right? And my mom or my dad would pull me aside and be like, son, like, this isn't what Gibsons do. We, we don't, we don't speak that way. Like, uh, okay, trying to, you know, wrap my mind around it. And going to school, your friends would say some things or pick up words or phrases. And I'd try one on my parents just thinking I was smooth. And that was like, not the move, right? That's just, that's not what we say, right? And another instance, like everybody in the school got those like roller backpacks. Like, are those back in style yet? I don't know. And I thought they were the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, parents, please. And my dad says, that's just, that's, that's not what we do, son. Please, please, please. Okay, realize the roller backpack wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. They, my parents like figured out how to be wise. Like it was amazing. But what has stuck with me is the consistency and the invitation and my, my parents casting a vision of what our life would look like. That this is the way that we are going to live. This is the way that we are going to speak. And this is what Paul is doing for the church in Ephesus and he's doing for the church in Keen. That this is the vision of the new reality, the new community, the way that we should talk, the way that we should walk, the actions that we should have. We don't have time today to go through the rest of the chapter of all the different ways where Paul gets into the particulars by saying, it's okay to be angry, but don't let your anger lead you to sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Use good words when you speak to people. Don't tell lies. Speak the truth in love. Boom, 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 boom. And ultimately, Paul concludes the last verse of Ephesians 4, verse 32. He says, instead, instead of all this other way, how you used to operate in the world, he holds up three virtues. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Follow Jesus with your whole heart and be kind to the people that sit next to you. Be kind to the person that cuts you off in traffic. Be kind to the person or the, the, the person who's at the checkout line at the store who maybe didn't notice that you were in line and stepped in front of you or the person at work who you can see is having a bad day or has been antagonistic towards you. Be kind, be tenderhearted and forgive. It's at the core of what it means to be a Christian. I came across a story this week. Uh, a, a teacher by the name of Crystal Jones was teaching in a low-income community, a low-income school, and she was tasked with teaching the first grade. And the students that came into the first grade, sometimes this is the first time they were going to school. A lot of them had challenges with literacy. And she looked at the year and said, this, is always, this, is, this year is going to be impossible. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to make sure these first graders can understand what we're trying to teach them in first grade? So she began observing them on the, on the playground. And the school was divided in a particular way that, that the third graders were also out to recess when, when the first graders were there. And you know what's one of the things a first grader really, really, really wants to be? A third grader. Because they run faster. They play better. They're just, oh man, let me look up to those third graders, right? And so she observed this. And a game plan hatched in her mind. She comes back to her class the next day. And she tells her first grader, she says, I've been, I've been observing you. And here's, here's the deal. By the end of the year, 
you are going to be third graders. And you would have thought she told them they were having a pizza party at the end of the day, right? And she went on to tell them, you are no ordinary pupils. You are scholars. And you need to refer to each other as scholars. So if you were to walk into the class, you may hear scholar David, scholar Carlos, scholar Tom. And you might kind of scratch your head and you would ask the, the students, hey, well, why are you referring to each other as scholars? And this class would respond, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and who is good at it. And what Crystal did for her class was cast a vision that they could strive towards, putting in front of them the caricature of the person that they wanted to be. And as she was encouraging them in this way, they took their kind of mid-year tests and the test came back that a majority of the class was now reading at a second grade level, halfway through the year. Got a group of students who in the beginning can barely do what a first grader needs to do, have already accomplished second grade level. She kept pushing and casting the vision for them and casting the vision for them. And you know what? Tests at the end of the year, over 90% of those first graders could read at a third grade level. Because that teacher had a vision. It says, you can do more. Your surroundings and your environment are not determining the outcome this year. I want to create an environment in my classroom where you can excel and you can thrive. And Paul has done the same thing for us in Ephesians 4. He's called us. He says, here's a vision. Here's how you should operate. That everyone would contribute to the growth of the church, which is the body of Christ. And please hold me and our staff accountable to that vision. You say, hey, I, I, I haven't been involved. Please come, let's go. We are all in this together because two questions remain. Where does our church need to grow towards maturity? And what gifts has God given us to enable this to take place? We must answer this on an individual level and then come back to it corporately. Where has God called you to grow towards maturity? What gifts has he given you in order for this to take place? And I implore you, I beg you to live a life according to the calling with which you've been called. And the same thing for this little faith community nestled in the heart of Johnson County that we call Keene Seventh Adventist Church. Where does our church need to grow towards maturity? And what gifts has God given to enable this to take place? Only you can answer that. My heart has been comforted and warmed this week by the response our community has given towards a family facing tragedy. I know we're up for the task because when the occasion arises, I see it. But what would it look like if we faced our world every week as we've had this week? With tenderheartedness, with kindness, and with forgiveness. And we got busy building the body of Christ right here in this place. I'm excited for what's to come excited to see where we need to grow and what gifts God has already given to enable this to take place.